electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort. Deirdre Bosa has the day off. Today, past winners once again lead stocks higher. Apple, Netflix, Marvel, uh, big gainers as the Nasdaq bounced back in July. It is now the time to double down. Kathy Wood thinks so, once again calling growth names the new leadership and calling a market bottom. We're going to break down some of her calls within tech. And then we've now heard from a lot of the tech heavyweights, some warning of further deterioration in ad spend, others the need to reduce hiring, some areas of consumer weakness. What is the pull through for earnings this week? We're going to get Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Airbnb, and gaming, Activision, EA, and FinTech, PayPal, and Block could get some uh, insight into spending habits and business activity. John, 150 plus S&P names and about a third of the consumer. So today's a pivotal week. Yeah, it kicks off a pivotal week after another pivotal one. And the temptation is you had a lot of big names, you know, mega caps last week to think, oh, well, this week, no big deal. No, I think it is a big deal. You know, we got, uh, as you just mentioned, PayPal, uh, Block, Twilio, Robinhood. Uh, So some of the momentum names, some of the risk on sort of names that have been benefiting or had been throughout July as we have questions about what's going to happen in August and can that momentum continue? Who knows? The guidance here might have something to say about it. And I'm particularly interested to see what AMD does tomorrow. I know you got Lisa Sue on Squawk on the Street Wednesday morning as well because the overall PC industry has been in a state of decline perhaps, but Is she able to eke out through perhaps share in data center a better story than we heard from the likes of Intel? We'll see. Uh, Yeah, we talked about that with Kramer this morning, specifically about gaming and what that's done to both NVIDIA and AMD. John, you know, semis, the, the, the number of cross currents, really confusing right now, whether it's PCs and gaming and crypto being offset maybe by autos on semi pretty decent quarter and guidance today, but it got smacked at the open. Uh, so it's going to it is it remains a tough read uh, what's happening right now in semis, not to mention all of the Chips Act and China U.S. relations part we got to deal with. A lot is data center dependent. The Fed likes to talk about being data dependent, but data center dependent, it seems, because, <laughs> yeah, from uh, Logitech, we saw that the gaming accessory cooled down along with webcams, the very consumer-leaning stuff that had continued to be strong, while keyboards, mice, things that you use for productive work, that, uh, you know, continued to be strong while the other stuff weakened. So what does that mean for those who are selling gaming, uh, you know, gaming cards and gaming chips, etc.? We'll see. Well, uh, let's figure out what the read-through is to this week from much of what we saw last week. Joining us now, Needham Senior Analyst Laura Martin. Laura, welcome. So what did you learn perhaps that surprised you last week that you think has some bearing on some of the results we're going to get this week? 
So I think the most important thing is from both Snap and from Meta, we heard that digital advertising was very weak. Also Roku, who said in June, uh, which was the last month of the second quarter, digital advertising just sort of came to a stop. Um, and that has read through effects for a lot of the digital advertising companies like Trade Desk or Magnite or anything with like Disney or um, Paramount. So I am worried now about the advertising growth rates for the second quarter. I'm worried about those companies making their second quarter so what do you make, though, of Alphabet and how relatively strong it was? And then Amazon's ad business was also strong, perhaps because, you know, there's less guesswork involved there. It's all first party data. And if you're advertising on on Amazon, it's pretty clear to see what the read through is to actually a purchase taking place. What's the difference? So I think that's a great point. And Amazon was asked about that on their call. And they specifically said that they continued to see strength in advertising because they closed the loop because an advertiser can make an ad and then somebody can buy now, which is, a you know, the advertiser knows exactly what the return on ad spend was on Amazon. So Amazon did assert that they are not seeing weakness in advertising, um, although they don't guide for the third quarter, which is what we're in now. Um, in terms of, I agree with you on search over at Alphabet. It grew 14%, quite robust growth, uh, not disappointing. But YouTube only grew 5%. So I think that that's the same sort of digital ad weakness that Roku is seeing. But it could be just that TikTok is eating their lunch the way TikTok is really hurting Meta and Snap. So it could be a more structural issue, or it could be a cyclical issue that's slowing um, remember YouTube, we were disappointed in YouTube's growth last quarter, which was up 14%. And in the second quarter, it was up 5%, which is quite a meaningful deceleration from a disappointing number 90 days ago. Laura, you mentioned Meta. You know, this morning, uh, Kramer and I were talking about Fang. He, he meant to say Fang. Instead, he said Ang, because at this point, I mean, does Meta even deserve to get included in that group? I know you've got an underperform. And your general view is that they're their focus on the metaverse sort of implies fears about the viability of their historical collection of business. Say, I agree with that. I think the trouble we have with Meta is it doesn't own its content and it doesn't own its distribution. It's getting hurt by privacy changes at iOS because almost all of its distribution is on someone else's platform, Apple's platform. So it gets hurt when Apple makes policy decisions similar you know, its content is, is by creators. It's 100% social network. So what happens is those most lucrative creators are moving to TikTok and it can't control them. It can't keep them. So it's actually losing its content also. And it's now trying to get it back. But meanwhile, it's having to really hurt its monetization. We estimate it monetizes at about uh, a fifth of newsfeed and its algorithms are pushing people into reels, which is its TikTok knockoff, but it doesn't monetize there. So it's actually having to shoot itself in the foot from a revenue point of view to try to win against TikTok. At the same time, it's investing a fortune in the metaverse, which it hopes makes a return on investment in 2030. Do you think that explains why um, the color of Zuckerberg's conference calls with employees, his memos about hiring discipline, cost discipline have been so ferocious? I do. I do. I think that he really feels he needs to own the platform so that he's not a victim of someone else's platform like right now he is on iOS. So he wants to create the hardware backbone um, through Oculus goggles that replaces Apple. That ever he thinks, ever, you know, whether it's glasses, he's trying to buy a glass company, a glass, you know, a wearables company, and the FTC is going to sue to block him. But I think his idea has become the hardware backbone that every consumer uses so he can make privacy changes and hurt other people on his platform. 
But Laura, to Carl's point on labor costs, it's not just a meta thing, right? We've, we've got Alphabet coming out and saying now the workforce isn't as productive as we'd like you to be. So, you know, we want to do a little, I don't know what they're calling it, but, you know, productivity workshop type thing, which sounds to me like just kind of like a warning shot that, hey, when, when we do some layoffs or some hiring freezes later and say you guys weren't productive enough, it's not like we didn't warn you. But it, even the companies that seem to be performing relatively well still seem to have staffed up and seem to be going through a period of indigestion, whether you're talking about Amazon, Alphabet, or Meta. I think, I think these companies have been growing so fast, 30 and 40% a year, that they sort of have no idea what everyone's doing and what they're working on. <laughs> so I actually think this is a, not for employees, it's not, this isn't a great period for employees, but I think it's a great period for these hyper-growth companies to stop and assess what teams are working on and whether teams should be working on all that stuff and how they fit into the core mission. Uh, and so therefore, how much do you expect the guide from companies this week? And I don't know if there are any in particular that you're covering, uh, but certainly the, the data out of them might have a read back into some of the larger names that you do cover. How much do you expect those guides to affect the overall tech market? I expect all of the guides having to do with digital advertising to be disappointing. Roku took our numbers from 22% growth to three, and its stock was down 25%. I expect words to be hurtful this week because of the uncertainty, because CEOs don't know what's happening. Some of them are going to suspend guidance, like Snap did. Their stock was down 38%. Roku didn't suspend guidance, but when it took it to only up 3% in the current quarter, their stock got hit 25%. So I think the notion of uncertainty is going to create some conservatism in CEOs, and therefore the market's going to think things might be worse than they're actually going to be. I think it's completely unclear. I'd be with the uncertainty. It's completely unclear. We're going to have that draconian slowdown. Hmm. We'll see. Maybe a little optimism backlash. Laura Martin, thank you. Thank you. A good July, but tech stocks are still having a tough year, as you already know. Retail investors feeling a bit confident, though, ramping up their investments, according to this piece in the journal today. Purchases of a basket of popular tech names, including Fang, now hitting the highest level since at least 2014. Joining us this morning is the author of that piece, CNBC contributor Gunjan Banerjee of the journal. Gunjan, great insight this morning about that, even uh, the way in which investors are piling into leveraged ETFs, which I thought was fascinating, too. It's a really interesting moment for tech in particular. And what we're seeing is that individual investors, many of them are doubling down on the sector despite the volatility that we've seen. You know, tech has been at the center of the market mayhem this year. And many individual investors I spoke with said, I'm holding on to these stocks. And as you pointed out, a lot of them are also turning to these leveraged funds, which are incredibly risky to play these crazy swings in the sector. It's really wild to think that funds like TQQ, SQQ, two leveraged ETFs tied to the NASDAQ are you know, the third and fourth most popular ETFs for individual investors to buy this year. Is it your sense that the, the sentiment is, I believe in the longer term pace of innovation to ride out business cycles and, and, and economic cycles? Or is it simply a matter of trying to get even with what they've lost so far uh, in, in tech? You know, I think there's a number of factors driving this. Several investors I spoke with said, look, I've had these stocks for 
for a few years now. Maybe they won't grow at the pace they did in prior years. And we saw that with the Fang names last week. But I still think they'll be great businesses to, to buy and hold. I still believe in even Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon. And I think we saw that in the market last week, right, where many of these mega cap names did report slowing growth, but many investors piled into the names and, and people do seem confident in their ability to, to weather recession. On the other side, I also saw some individual investors saying, hey, what's the next Apple? What's the next Amazon? And even looking to riskier, more speculative investments in the tech sector. Okay, Gunjan, are retail investors just swarming the soccer ball at this point, like like a bunch of first and second graders trying to play soccer, just going, you know, chasing wherever the market goes? Because it seems like, you know, we had you on months ago, and there were a lot of risky options bets that retail investors were putting on, and then the market tanked, and people seemed to get pretty conservative, and now maybe sticking a foot out, a toe out on the risk limb again? So what, what I've learned, John, is that these investors, it's such a varied group, and it really is tough to paint them with a broad brush. And I think too many people do that, right? A lot of individual investors I've spoken with are buy and hold investors. They are stampeding into markets in times of volatility. Others are playing options. Um, others are playing these leveraged ETFs. So it's really, really tough because they're not an entirely homogenous group. Um, and, and many investors I spoke to for this piece have been holding on to tech for a while and have been holding on to stocks for a while. Um, but broadly speaking, we are seeing options activity, you know, the, the types of trades that you pointed out. We have seen that decline a bit this year, particularly among individual investors. Okay, so from a historical perspective, are we getting back into uh, the usual space or still quite a bit above it? I think we're, we're closer to that. You know, the last time I looked at this data a few weeks ago, it looked like we were well above pre-pandemic levels, um, but still lower than the peak that we saw during the pandemic. So there has been, you know, some kind of new equilibrium forming there. Finally, Gunjan, you know, we, uh, we're in the month of August. You know, we always like to keep track of, uh, of seasonality, historical trends, but also the fact that it is a midterm year and whether or not politics are going to start to influence trade more aggressively in, in the next 100 days, uh, exactly, actually. Um, is, is that a growing sense or a growing, growing topic of conversation? You know, I feel like so far it's still been focused on inflation, 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 which, of course, does get political. Um, but there have just been so many headwinds this year, so many challenges for markets from inflation, talk of a recession. Right now, I feel like all eyes are focused on that, though, as I'm sure as we get you know, further on the year, people will start paying more attention to, to the elections, which did, which did cause quite a bit of volatility uh, last cycle. Yeah, certainly. Well, today's um, some of the today's ISM numbers and prices paid definitely uh, prove that point. Gunjan, great stuff. Uh, good to see you. Gunjan Banerjee of The Journal. Still to come, Kathy Wood says we may have seen a market bottom. No surprise. Plus, the cybersecurity stock one analyst thinks can rally 40% from here. Those stories are next. Tech Check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Here's a gut check on Palo Alto Networks. Wolf upgrading to outperform, hiking its price target from $499 to $700. That would be about 40% upside from here. They say the stock is one investors can hide out in, adding that the company is delivering both growth and free cash flow at an attractive valuation. Shares are up about 2% today, Carl. Uh, John, are we ready for a recession? Stocks have mostly shrugged off poor economic data. Stocks coming off a big melt-up in July, as you know. And now ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood told our D. Bosa on Friday's tech trade special that we've already bottomed. That started in February of 21. And um, it looks like, at least so far, uh, that we bottomed on an intraday basis based on our flagship strategy um, uh, on May 12th. And uh, we actually bottomed before the NASDAQ and the S&P did. The S&P broke down to new lows after that. Uh, So that was uh, an early signal that we might be turning the corner here. Our next guest was there for that interview and disagrees, arguing we could have further to fall. Joining us this morning, Satori Fund's Dan Niles. Dan, it's great to have you again on the heels of that on Friday. Your general take in reaction to that thesis from Kathy is that the Fed simply has a lot more work to do. Is that fair? That's fair. And you have a lot more work for the economy to do to absorb what the Fed is doing today, because don't forget, you don't discount this stuff immediately. There's a lag. It takes about a year for some of this stuff to work its way through on the downside, just like there's a lag on the upside. So there's a time element here, I think, also that people are forgetting because the Fed you know, is at 2.5%. They just started raising rates this year. If you look at their summary of economic projections, they're expecting to get to three and a quarter to three and a half at the end of this year. So potentially another 100 basis points. And then the thought is off those same projections, they get to 4% at some point next year. And that's where the disconnect is. Because right now, if you look at the futures markets, people have the Fed cutting in the March quarter of next year and rates going down. And I think what you're going to find, and that's really what drove a lot of the rally last week, is there was a 5% gain in the S&P in the last three trading days. And 3% of that was the day of the Fed. Uh, meeting where they gave the decision. And I think what you're going to find out is this Fed is going to stay more aggressive for longer than people think to make sure they don't make the same mistake that was done in the 1970s, which, by the way, they talked about, which is twice they started to cut before they give them the chance for the economy to slow down. And then inflation got worse before Volcker finally had to kill it off in 1981. Right. No, it's definitely like uh, like killing off a villain in a horror movie. But those <laughs> bulls that you mentioned Dan, are going to feel gratified when they see prices paid on ISM down by the most in 12 years, a 10-year below 2.6 today. What do, you, what do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, you always get these bear market rallies. It's pretty common. You've had four rallies in the S&P this year that have averaged 9%. So you should be up 36%, right? Well, you're actually down 13 And the thing is that you get these all the time. And yes, is inflation going to come off? Absolutely. But here's the thing you have to look at. The U.S. economy is 
75% based on services. You've got almost twice as, many, twice as many job openings than you have people unemployed. So you're going to have continued wage pressure for a very long period of time, and that affects three quarters of the economy. The other part is rents. And even though home prices are coming down now, they're still up 20% or so year over year. That feeds into rents with about a year and a half lag. So even if prices are coming down today, you're still going to have to absorb how much prices went up. And that's 30 to 40% of all inflation measures. So you look at used car prices, yeah, that's 3%. So who cares relative to the big stuff like wages and rents? And multiples, if you look at that, are way too high in the sense that the trailing P for the S&P is 20 times. When CPI has been above 3% in the past, the trailing PE is about 15 times. Mm -hmm. So you can't even make a good valuation argument for the market in general either. Okay, so Dan, it's John. So you say you made money in June with the S&P down 8%, but you also made money in July with the S&P up 9%. How are you positioned in August, given that you seem to be leaning into the turns here and uh, you don't think that the market was making the right kind of bet off of what the Fed said last week? Yeah, so what, what you, John's referring, what you're referring to, obviously, is the write-up we did. It's on our website, danniles.com. And basically what we've done is we've cut back a lot of our longs on this move higher. Like, you know, we talked about it with Debos on Friday. You know, we had a 15% long position on Amazon. Um, we got rid of that, and we're, we're happy with that. It's actually one of the stocks we probably will buy back to put against our shorts. But our long positions now, our biggest one is below 3%. Um, our shorts, however, you know, they're pretty large. We have one that backs above 10% because you're still not done getting earnings coming down. And this is the first quarter that you've had earnings estimates for the S&P move down in about two years in terms of forward numbers. And you can look at the mega cap tech stocks as a good example of that. Apple and Amazon both had really good quarters. They beat revenues. They beat EPS, both of them. EPS numbers for the September quarters come down for those guys. And then obviously you have the rest of them like Google and Facebook, et cetera, where they missed. And, you know, those numbers come down too. But in general, all of the big cap tech companies, the September quarter numbers come down, even if they had a good June quarter. And so you're still in the early stages of that process hmm. after two years of estimates going up for the S&P. I think you're going to have a 20% revision lower on the calendar 23 numbers as you go through the course of this next year so, as you're absorbing all these rate hikes. So, Dan, what do you think the, cal the catalyst is going to be to get more investors to uh, see the glass half empty the way you see it? Or maybe, maybe it's three quarters empty uh, the, the way you see it if... Uh, up to this point, there hasn't been that catalyst. What's it going to be? Some earnings, uh, language from the Fed. Uh, what changes their minds? Well, remember, it's a time equation, right? If you go back to the tech bubble or the global financial crisis, you had five rallies in the S&P of 18 to 21 percent. This is 13. So it's a time equation. And people are now, of course, making the argument, well, estimates have been reset and they're lower and they're beatable. And then, you know, as you go through this quarter and you go through August and September, if numbers have to come down again and the Fed comes out and says, yeah, inflation's come down, but it's now at 7%, not 9%, we need to get it back to 2 to 3 and they keep pushing, 
That's what's going to drive this lower. So it's a combination of earnings, multiples, and just time component. Because right now you can say, oh, good, all the numbers came down. I can buy these. And look, the stocks are going up, so let me buy them. But you're, you're in this spot where, don't forget, don't fight the Fed and don't fight the fundamentals. That's working great on the way up. That also works on the way down. <laughs> so true, Dan. Uh, look forward to expanding on it a little bit more next time. Uh, good stuff. Appreciate it very much, as always. Dan Niles. My pleasure. Coming up, the worst quarter he's ever seen. By one analyst is calling out Intel's performance next, right here on Tech Show. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You haven't heard about number crispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Julia Borston. Julia's got a gut check on big tech's big investment in the metaverse in just a second. But first, let's get a news update with Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hey there, Carl. Price gains in the U.S. housing market still strong but weakening. A mortgage data company reports price gains up an annual rate of 17.3% in June. That's down 2% and the biggest drop since the company began tracking prices in the early 1970s as rising mortgage rates, of course, have cooled demand. A union representing some workers at Starbucks stores is accusing the company of cynically raising wages today just for non-unionized workers. Management says it can't make the changes without going through bargaining at unionized locations, but the union has said it will waive the requirement for the new benefits. That's according to a letter obtained by CNBC. The National Labor Relations Board ultimately could be called in here to make a decision. The Justice Department is challenging United Healthcare's multi-billion dollar plan to buy a Nashville-based health insurer. It kicks off a trial today. This is seen as a major test of the Biden administration's tougher antitrust stance and something, John, that has got to come into play anytime you're looking at a big merger or acquisition. Indeed, Contessa Brewer, thank you. Meantime, new signals from big tech post-earnings are painting an ugly picture of the economy, perhaps the rest of 2022. Our Steve Kovac joins us to explain. Hey, Steve. Hey there, John. Yeah, big tech was flashing warning signs about the macroeconomic environment this earnings season. We heard from Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon and Meta. And all these companies touch different surfaces of the economy and paint this dire picture for the months ahead. Just this weekend, our Jennifer Elias reporting Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai telling employees to double down on productivity. And that's echoing what we've heard from Mark Zuckerberg telling Meta employees just a few weeks ago. Meanwhile, Microsoft is slowing hiring in some areas. And I spoke with Tim Cook last week, and he was telling me Apple is, quote, deliberate in hiring due to rising inflation and all those related costs. Microsoft had its own dire warning, saying small and medium businesses are spending less on IT and warning of a, quote, deteriorating PC market starting in June. But Apple told an opposite story with Cook saying on the earnings call the company couldn't even make enough Macs to accurately test PC demand. On the other hand, demand is still strong for the high-end consumer, with Apple expecting iPhone sales to remain strong and contribute to revenue growth in this tough quarter ahead. 
Meanwhile, all companies, with the exception of Amazon, warning about a softening advertising market. Microsoft said advertising took a $100 million hit last quarter, and we know how bad things are with Meta struggling to monetize that TikTok competitor Reels. And finally, foreign exchange is the real one to look out for. It isn't expected to ease up until next year, according to these companies. And that's bad news for companies with lots of exposures in countries where the dollar is the strongest, like Europe and Japan. And that hurts growth for things like Apple's services business and Microsoft's cloud growth. So don't be surprised, guys, if we see some price increases. John, I'll send it back to you. Steve, thanks. Uh, we're going to speak to Jen Elias in a moment about that Google article. And in the meantime, let's turn to chips. Intel fell sharply Friday after posting an ugly quarter and outlook last week. We spoke to CEO Pat Gelsinger on Friday. We have our best PC product line in at least five years. Alder Lake, you know, we're now ramping Meteor Lake to our customers. Soon, uh, next uh, a Raptor Lake next year, a Meteor Lake, a very strong product line. So we also see ourselves as a share gainer, even as we go through some turbulence in the marketplace. So overall, we're very confident. And as we said on the call yesterday, this is the bottom. We're rebuilding from here. Hmm. So is this really the bottom? Our next guest calling Intel's Q2 the worst he has seen in his career expects things to get worse before they improve. Joining us now, Bernstein analyst Stacey Rasgun, who has an underperformed rating on the stock. Stacey, I mean, whoa, it was, that was bad, right? From, from expectations bad, yeah. around 18 billion to more in the 15 billion range. But he says they're drawing down these inventories ahead of Q4 and the product roadmap looks better. Why, why do you not buy it? Do you think demand is deteriorating faster than Pat is counting on? I mean, demand is clearly deteriorating. I mean, that, that's, that's without a question. But the inventory question is, an, is another good one. We've been making this point for a year almost. They were overshipping, like especially in the notebook space, they were overshipping by something like 30%. And so this is actually now the, the, the quarter they just reported Q2 is the first one where we've actually seen that significant inventory correction to try to work off that overshipment that we saw for the bulk of last year. Their guidance right now incorporates a pretty sizable hockey stick into Q4. So they're effectively assuming that the inventory correction by then is done. I, I think that is open for debate, just given the amount of channel inventory that I think is out there, as well as the state of just overall demand. If demand continues to deteriorate, that makes it harder and harder to normalize. I don't know what it's going to look like into Q4 and, and next year. But then you also have to think even longer term than that. You know, they had given some long-term forecast at their analyst day that were in some sense predicated on PCs growing and they were growing off of the very high base that we set in 2021. All of those forecasts to me look completely out the window. They were outlandish to begin with, but they look out the window now. I don't know what this is going to look like as we go. I will say that we are still early. Like they're in the middle of a transition. Pat has talked about this. We're at the barest beginning of that transition now. It has only just begun. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out as we go over the next few years. But isn't the important question at this point, how much optimism is still priced into this stock, right? Does the street even believe that stuff about the PC growth at 37 bucks a share these days? Well, or, you know, will some kind of, you know, meaningful success of a product in Q4 actually surprise people to the upside? I, Q4, who knows? If, if, if you're long the stock, you're not owning it for, for Q3 or Q4 or Q1. You're owning it because you believe over the next five years they can they can right the ship, right, and, 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 and turn it around. That's why you're owning it. 
I don't think we're going to hear anything about Q4. And in fact, everything we're hearing about the current product roadmaps is a disaster. Right? They're, they're not getting better. They're getting worse. I mean, the, the, the biggest push out was is, is Sapphire Rapids. This is their next generation server part. It was actually supposed to ship last year. Now they're saying it's going to sort of ramp into volume in the second half. And if you go back and listen to the conference call, they're effectively saying the real volume for that is actually first half of, of next year. So it, it's massively delayed. Every product road that they've had up until now has been delayed. Um, I don't know what we hear in Q4 that really changes that that narrative, right? Stacey, I wonder just optically, you know, here we have a company that was the tip of the spear and getting legislation that was going to restore our ability to be self-sufficient on leading edge chips. And then comes this quarter and this CapEx guidance and everything you just said. Um, how much of that uh, does not work for the longer term goal of trying to be self-sufficient? Well, first of all, the CHIPS Act is not going to make us self-sufficient in leading edge chip. It's, I keep saying this. It's a rounding error. It's a start. You have to start somewhere. But $52 billion over five years for the entire U.S. semiconductor industry is not going to appreciably change the percentage of capacity that is installed in the U.S. It is just the starting point. If they really want to change that, they're going to have to invest a, a lot more. Um, and frankly, so is Intel. Most of the money that they're still talking about investing is coming off of their own balance sheet. Now, the subsidies will help, but it's going to come from them. This gets to the other point. Like, do they actually need these factories? Like, I, I don't I don't know. They're certainly, I don't think that they need to build, you know, two new fabs in Arizona and two new fabs in Ohio and everything to support the core business. I guess, presumably, this is going to, going to support the foundry business. And that, that by the way, is, is the biggest risk. Those are the chips that are made in Taiwan. Um, none of that capacity is coming online for years and years and years anyways, right? And, and even once it does, it is a drop in the bucket compared with what TSMC and others have installed elsewhere. So... Uh, and then even yeah. betting on success, how do we actually know what Intel's foundry business is going to look like in five years? I mean, given their current trajectory, like it, it doesn't look all that promising from here. Yeah, they, they've got to be significantly better is what it yeah. sounds like you're saying. So let's let's look Good forward <laughs> into AMD coming this week. Um, is it about data center for them mainly uh, to, to see how much better they perform uh, than Intel, and thus how much share they might be gaining there. Um, you know, is that is that the story we should look for, or something else? It's it's a huge piece of the story. First, people want to look at their do they they just held guidance. They reiterated guidance at the analyst day a, a month or month and a half ago. So people want to see that, even amid maybe PCs getting weaker. But they were already baking in weak PCs. I do think data center is, is the key piece. And I'll be honest. I think AMD is going to murder Intel on on server market share when they report on Tuesday. Um, because I know what Intel did, and I, I kind of know what the general market is has been doing this quarter. We've had other players in that in that space have reported. Um, Intel looks far and away much worse than anything anybody would have expected based on what we're hearing from most of the other companies. Um, I think all of that bodes pretty well for AMD. Okay, we'll be watching it. Stacey Rasgan, yeah. thank you. You bet. Let's get a news alert on a new investor in Twitter. Leslie Picker's got it. Hey, LP. Hi, uh, Carl. Green lights. David Einhorn, uh, in a new letter to investors saying that they purchased a position in Twitter at an average of $37.24 per share. Unclear the size of this position. Um, and Greenlight, not a known merger arbitrage trader, uh, not one to tend to dabble too much in the, the goings-on of the Delaware Chancery Court, but it appears uh, that they have a stake in Twitter, and they say that the price is about 17 per share of upside if Twitter prevails in court there in its deal with Elon Musk. Uh, 
uh, and they believe it's about 17th per share of downside if that deal breaks. So they're giving it a 50-50 odds that something like this should happen, um, say 95% plus of the time, according to this letter. Interestingly, and you know, worth noting for background, of course, that Greenlight has been a long time short of Twitter. They say they haven't written about Tesla since 2019. They don't intend to break that streak now, but Elon Musk is, of course, a different story. Uh, also, some interesting insights here in the letter about just the overall macro environment. Greenlight, while not a merger arbitrage trader, well-known for its value investing style, which has been a, a bit of a struggle in recent years. So much the case this year. They returned 8.4% in the second quarter of 2022, 13% for the first half of 2022. Um, and they say, does this mean value investing is back? The answer is a resounding no. So a lot of interesting insights here, guys. Wow. Uh, the, the needle moving once again. We'll watch that uh, closely. Leslie Picker with that news uh, on, uh, on Twitter today. We were just talking some chips. Take a look at OnSemi. Shares lower despite posting a beat across the board today. We're going to talk with the CEO tomorrow. In the meantime, trying to hold the green here. Dow's up 52. Tech Check is back after this. Welcome back. We get a couple of names in the gaming space reporting this week when we get Activision and EA. A lot of companies pouring money into the metaverse, but not all the bets are paying off. Our Julia Borston's looking at who is seeing returns and who may be pulling back on spend. Hi, Julia. Well, Carl, though recessionary pressures may have made metaverse plans less of a near-term priority, the tech giants Meta, Apple, Google, Microsoft continue to make long-term investments in hardware and software to bring consumers and companies into immersive 3D worlds. Now, since Meta's name change last year, the company has readied a web version of its Horizon World and a high-end VR headset called the Quest Pro, which it plans to launch later this year. Plus, it opened a retail store focused on VR. But Meta has suffered some setbacks in this area, reportedly delaying the release of AR glasses beyond 2024. And the FTC is looking to block its acquisition of a VR startup. Plus, it's burning billions of dollars on its Reality Labs division every quarter. But it's not just Meta. In the next year, we expect a battle to brew to sell new hardware. Now, in addition to Meta's coming Quest Pro, along with its core Quest 2 headset, which is lower cost, Apple is expected to release its mixed reality product as soon as the spring. It is already reportedly working with content creators like John Favreau for content for this new format. Plus, Google is working on its own AR headset, reportedly set for 2024, along with a new version of Google Glass. And Microsoft is continuing to work to expand its enterprise-focused HoloLens AR headset to more healthcare companies, manufacturers, and the like. And Microsoft says it's working on a consumer version of this headset as well. And we know venture investors see a growing opportunity in the metaverse. They've poured $1.9 billion into companies in, the, in this space so far this year. That's more than the amount invested in these companies in all of last year. But one question we're watching specifically for the near term is really how much a recession could dampen consumer interest in buying some of these more expensive devices. John. All right, Julia. Thank you. As we head to break, take a look at Ether. The crypto since the start of July up more than 60 percent. More on the crypto bounce when Tech Check returns. Got check on Alibaba as the China tech roller coaster takes another turn. The company says it's working to maintain 
trading on both U.S. and Hong Kong exchanges after the SEC added it to their delisting risk list. Today, BABA announcing it will comply with laws to keep their listings on both exchanges. Meanwhile, Chinese tech companies, the worst NASDAQ 100 performers over the last month, with names like Pinduoduo and Baidu, the biggest losers, Carl. Uh, yeah, definitely not participating in what was a pretty good July, John. Coming up after the break, Google CEO Sundar Pichai, his message to employees as the company braces for more economic uncertainty. With stocks close to session highs, Dow's up 120. Google calling on its employees to hit the ground running. The CEO calling for a so-called simplicity sprint during an all-hands meeting last week in an effort to get, quote, better results faster as the company faces the possibility of a weaker macro environment. Joining us this morning, the reporter behind that story, CNBC reporter Jennifer Elias. Jennifer, it's fascinating. We've heard a lot about hunker-down memos and hiring discipline, but this is actually a proactive prescription of what to do about it. Right, Carl. So this is a little bit of a reaction to the missed earnings that it just reported uh, last week with its second quarter. So, you know, they have this all-hands meeting that they attend regularly. And this was had, this one they had late last week was a little bit more of an urgent tone as CEO Sundar Pichai, you know, told em- employees, brace for impact, basically. He doesn't see the headwinds kind of going away anytime in the near future. And, uh, you know, he also came with an idea for a program that they launched, which is to crowdsource ideas from its employee base um, through August 15th. And it's called Simplicity Sprint, as you mentioned. Uh, And it's an attempt to kind of keep the areas of of focus um, as employees see it. And it's also, I think, a a twofold uh, impact in which employees can feel like they have a say in what the company does. But there was definitely a more urgent tone in which Sundar Pichai told employees, we are not at the uh, productivity that we should be, even with the headcount we have. And while we don't so, have current plans for layoffs, um, that they can't predict the, the economy. But Jennifer, at a practical level, what does this mean? I mean, if in essence he's saying we hired a bunch of people and now revenue isn't going up at the rate that we want, is that really something that people can sort of workshop a solution or, or does to me it sounds like kind of the warning shot that hey if we don't figure something out there's going to be uh, some freezes and, and some layoffs but but how does it really work what are people supposed to practically do with this yeah well Google sent with the simplicity sprint a survey with a few questions and you know really telling employees please give us feedback and response on where you think we should focus and where you think we should quote eliminate waste so the hope is that they'll get enough ideas within two weeks. They'll be able to kind of pin down and maybe see some ideas that they didn't have before, seeing as Google employees are among some of the best and brightest of the industry. But it also you know, could be a way of just making employees feel like they're being heard and like they have a voice, which is something that they've been complaining about the last several years as it's rapidly expanding. That's fascinating, too. It's going to be, I would, I would imagine, fun to report. Uh, we're re- really getting a window into how uh, corporate managers are, are leveraging their, their human talent. Jennifer, thank you. Uh, Jennifer Elias on Alphabet today. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing, and that's the move in cryptocurrency Ether over the last month, rising more than 60%. Kate Rooney's taking a look. Kate? Hey, John. Yeah, the world's second largest cryptocurrency had an even bigger month. 
than Bitcoin. Ether was up almost 70 percent for July versus about a 30 percent gain for Bitcoin. Both are still down for the year and well off of those November highs. The optimism around Ether is really specific to that cryptocurrency. Ether is the coin tied to the Ethereum network. It's in the process of what you can think of as a software upgrade. The way it's run or validated, as some people call it, will change and the way new crypto is created will become faster and more energy efficient. Crypto's carbon footprint has really been one of its biggest criticisms. The date for what people are calling the merge is now on track for September 19th. That date had been pushed back a couple of times in the past, so still a little bit of skepticism around that. Either way, crypto investors are pouring into this trade ahead of that date. The number of addresses and spot volume jumped in July. You can also see some of that bullishness playing out in derivatives markets. This chart here from Glassnode shows what Fundstrat calls a parabolic increase in the open in- interest there for Ethereum. It's getting close to that hype we saw back in November. And the majority of those are call options or the option to buy. The September and December expiration dates are especially popular with crypto investors hoping for a sustained rebound in Ethereum after a pretty tough year for that cryptocurrency. Back to you. Uh, good stuff on that, Kate. We'll watch that closely. Meantime, uh, 4140, we basically took out Friday's high, John. So you got the S&P, uh, the highest level since early June, 10 year below 2.6 for the first time since April. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well, then you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.